We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh, and we're in the portion here at the very end now, chapters 20 and 21, where that message is being delivered through the events of the resurrection. I wanted to start us off with a bit of a kind of an art history thing. Maybe you'll detect a common theme in these images. There we go. This is Frangelico, famous painter from about 1441. And then Martin Schongauer, around 1480. And Antonio da Correggio, about 1495. You can see that in the 1400s, this was a popular subject. Fra Bartolomeo, in fifth, around 1506. Titian, you probably know who he is, around 1511 to 15, somewhere in there. Hans Holbein the Younger, around 1524. Alexander Ivanov, around 1835. James Tissot, around 1886 to 94. And Randall Worley, about 2022. <clears throat> you might have detected a common theme in these paintings. Uh, I, I kind of departed from the apparently uh, common approach of having Mary not quite touching Jesus. Um, but I'm, I'm convinced that when he said, stop grabbing me, it was because it had already happened. Um, so I, 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 I don't think it was that she almost touched him and he kept her from doing it. Uh, but this is, uh, <clears throat> in, art, in art history, this topic has a, a very uh, specific name. They go with the, the Latin translation of that phrase, don't cling to me, uh, noli metangere. So that's what I've titled our message today. We're going to consider this moment, Mary's encounter with the risen Lord. We're in John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18. <clears throat> Let's start with verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. It's been really fascinating uh, looking through the accounts of the resurrection uh, in, across the four Gospels because there's tremendous variation across the four Gospels. And um, I think that's what you expect when you're dealing with a genuine historical event with multiple eyewitnesses because every person writing has access to a number of people, different memories of different moments, and they put together things, but everybody has different uh, bits of the story, and you very much see that with the resurrection of Jesus, which is probably, uh, in terms of the historicity of the events told in the Gospels, I think we have the, the strongest markers of this reflecting a genuine historical event from all the things we find in the Gospels, precisely because of these many points of variation. Uh, I think if, as I look at this and try to piece together what everybody tells us about that morning, 
I think that initially Mary Magdalene together with uh, three, at least three other women went to the tomb and when they got there they saw that the tomb was empty. And I believe John at that point breaks with the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They stay with the group of women. John takes us following Mary Magdalene. And I think when they get there, see the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene runs back to tell, and John tells us this, runs back to tell John and Peter that the tomb is empty. I believe while that's happening is likely when the events we're told about in the Synoptic Gospels take place, that these women encounter one angel, according to Matthew and Mark, or perhaps two angels, according to Luke. Uh, Matthew and Mark may have just omitted mention of the second angel. But they encounter uh, an angel or, or two angels that basically tell them, Jesus rose just like he told you he was going to do and you need to run back and tell the other disciples that uh, he is going to go and meet you in Galilee. John doesn't mention any of that because he leaves the other women behind and takes us following Mary Magdalene that morning. So I think while she's off telling John and uh, Peter, uh, the other women are having this encounter with the angels. And then we read last week how John and Peter rush back to the tomb. They confirm that it's empty, and they go back. And this is where we pick up the story, continuing with Mary. I'm not sure the women were probably on their way back at this point, and Mary's there by herself outside the tomb, weeping. I think it's uh, easy for us. We've, we're given enough information about Mary to, that we, I think we can get a sense of what that morning was like for her. I think it all started when Thursday night. Uh, I don't know that she was there um, with the 12 at that Last Supper. <clears throat> Perhaps she was. I don't know. We're not told exactly that certain people weren't there. Uh, but uh, it seems she wasn't likely in the garden. And I can't imagine what that Thursday night was like for Mary when some of the disciples run back from the garden out of breath and inform her that Judas betrayed Jesus, that he showed up in the garden in the middle of the night with Roman soldiers and the officers of the temple police, and they arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. Peter and John aren't even with them. Who knows where they are? Of course, we know from the Gospels that they've followed Jesus into the outer courtyard of Annas, the high priest's uh, father-in-law, but uh, Mary doesn't know that. So there's a handful of disciples that have made it back. The Romans have taken Jesus, and that's all she knows. And this is middle of the night. By the time she can figure out where Jesus is the next morning, by the morning, he's already on the cross. As they rushed this through the whole night, and at the break of dawn, they were there at Pilate's headquarters. Before she even knows what's happening, Jesus is on the cross, and not long after that, he's dead. And she was a nobody. She couldn't get permission from the Roman authorities to get somebody that they had crucified and have authority to take his body down. That, was, that would get you in real big trouble with the Romans. You needed permission to dispose of the body, and Mary's nobody to ask for that kind of permission, but thankfully there is a disciple, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and he has the clout and the necessary uh, uh, 
wait to approach Pilate and obtain this permission to bury Jesus. And he, he, together with Nicodemus, they take down the body and very hastily put it in the tomb and wrap it up in cloths. They don't have time to do all the proper things you should do for a Jewish burial, but they do put spices and, and wrap him in cloths right before sundown and Sabbath begins at sundown Friday. I wonder if Mary spent that whole Sabbath figuring out where Jesus was, who got his body, tracking down Joseph of Arimathea and finding out exactly where that tomb was so that she could go there as soon as it was light on Sunday morning. Now, technically, the Sabbath ended at sundown on Saturday, but there's no way she could get in that dark tomb and do everything she needed to do in the dark. She would need light, and we know from John's account of it that she can't even wait for daylight on Sunday morning before the sun has even risen. In the dark, she's already on her way to the tomb and figures, I'll start in the dark, and I'll, as soon as light begins to creep into the day, I'll be able to fully do everything I need to do. Wash his body and wrap it lovingly and show him my devotion and love <coughs> in death. And we know the utter heartbreak she experiences when she arrives at the tomb and finds that the body's not even there. She had clung to the idea of providing this final act of loving devotion to Jesus. And even that has been stolen from her, taken from her. And she's outside the tomb just bawling. The Jewish people believed that lamenting the loss of the deceased was an important part of life. In Jewish custom at the time, you would spend a week mourning the loss of a loved one, a week in which you didn't bathe, you didn't work, you didn't even study the law because you had to th devote yourself fully to mourning the loss of the loved person. Mary is on day three of that. And she's just crying her eyes out at this sense of utter loss. And Let's keep reading. So, as she was weeping, she bent down to look into the tomb, and she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. And those are asking her, Ma'am, why are you weeping? She says to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. We continue with her agony that morning. Jesus had changed everything for her. Luke 8, 2 tells us that she was part of this party of women that traveled with Jesus and the disciples, and these women actually financially supported Jesus in his public ministry. And Jesus did something rabbis in his day did not do. He took on women as disciples as well as men. And uh, she was one of his close disciples. And just like all the other disciples we know about, she had left family and job and everything behind to follow after Jesus. And from Luke 8, 2, we know that Jesus had freed her from seven demons. Who knows what form 
of oppression, spiritual oppression these demons exercised in her life? Was it despair? Was it bitterness? Was it uh, utter despondency? Was it self-destructive behavior? How many ways can we be spiritually oppressed? Seven demons tormented her and tied her up in knots and Jesus showed up and they scattered like cockroaches when you turn on the light. They were gone. And for the first time in her life, she was free. It's hard to picture what the death of Jesus meant to her. And to have the final act of devotion taken from her. She bends down to look into the tomb one more time. And all of a sudden, there are two angels in there. Who knows how they showed up. She's been outside the tomb. They weren't there when Peter and John looked. But they're there now. And they ask her a question. Ma'am, literally woman, but it was an address of respect, kind of like we would say ma'am. Woman, why are you weeping? And she gives the answer. They've taken away my Lord. She refers to Jesus that way. He wasn't just a friend. She had devoted her life to him. He was her master her Lord, and she was following after him. And not only is he now dead, but they've even snatched away his body. She has no idea where they've laid him. I want you to put yourself in Mary's shoes. She was utterly heartbroken that Sunday morning. How have you experienced grief on top of seemingly unbearable grief in your own walk with Jesus? Have you had moments like that where you thought you couldn't take any more and then something else just piled on top? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Having said these things, she turned around and sees Jesus standing there, but she had not realized that it is Jesus. Jesus says to her, Ma'am, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing that he is the gardener, says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. So Mary has just answered the angel's question, and all of a sudden she turns around from the tomb, and behind her, there is Jesus standing. And John tells us she didn't realize it was him. I don't know if he was, had his back turned to her or if she was so distraught she didn't look at his face, just saw a person standing there. I do think, though, from our other accounts of the resurrected Jesus, there's something the same and something different about the risen Lord. When Paul talks about resurrection and talks about us being made like Jesus in his resurrection, he describes it as a transformation. That uh, we live in these corruptible, lowly, broken, uh, tainted bodies right now, but that in the resurrection we will experience uh, a body that is glorious and spiritual and, and of a different order of existence than what we know right now. And Jesus is the first of that new order of human existence. The first immortal human being. 
There's something different about the risen Jesus to the point that we know he spends all day walking and talking and explaining scripture to two of the disciples and it isn't until they get home and are about to eat dinner that they recognize it's Jesus. There's something about the risen Jesus that is the same but at the same time different and perhaps he has the ability to determine when people perceive exactly who he is. It is clear though that the moment they recognize him, the moment they realize who it is they're standing next to, they are so utterly convinced that they will devote the rest of their lives to pursuing him. There's no doubt. But initially, when Mary looks at him, for whatever reason, she doesn't realize it's Jesus. And he asks the same question, ma'am, woman, why are you weeping? And he adds another question, whom are you seeking? Jesus had this uncanny ability to understand the actual problem and address the real issue. Her problem is that there's somebody she's looking for that she feels like she's lost. So she thinks, oh, he must be the gardener, and the gardener would be a nobody, but it could be that if he was in the garden area, when whoever got there and took the body, maybe he saw where they took it, or maybe he himself is the one that moved the body for whatever reason. Sir, the word she uses is actually Lord, but it was used both as an address to God and also as a way of saying sir. And I think in this context, she just thinks he's the gardener. She's just being respectful. Lord, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where he is. I'll take care of the body. She doesn't even say who she's looking for, but she's standing outside the tomb. I think it's obvious. The body's gone. Whom are you seeking? And there's this sliver of hope. Maybe this guy can tell her where the body is. Maybe she can do what she had planned on doing after all. Maybe there'll be a way to recover this and she'll be able to do this final act of devotion she's been clinging to. Verse 16. Jesus says to her, Mary... Turning around, she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. That's all it took, Mary. Jesus turns to her and just speaks her name as he had done so many times before. And in that, in him calling her out by name, she knows exactly who he is. She turns around and speaks to him in her heart language, Aramaic, and says, Rabboni. John translates this for us. It means teacher, but that's not quite right. Uh, in the Aramaic, rabbi would be teacher. Rabboni is my teacher. Just as Adon is Lord and Adonai is my Lord. Rabboni. My teacher, this is the one she has devoted herself to. He is the master, she is the disciple, and she is going to follow after him. What that moment must have been like.
to go from feeling like she had lost everything. The, the depth of agony she was experiencing that morning, all of a sudden, in an instant, is gone. He's alive. Not only is he alive, he is there with her. They're together again. It's not over. And she is beyond ecstatic. Everything she has been mourning is all of a sudden pointless. All the agony she had been feeling turns out to have been unnecessary. Because all there was to worry about is the joy of his victory. And what she had thought was defeat was the greatest victory ever won. Mary's devastation became unspeakable joy when she encountered the risen Lord Jesus. How have you experienced the same joy as you have encountered him in your darkest moments? How has Jesus utterly transformed the darkest moments of your life? Verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet gone up to the Father, but go to my siblings and tell them, I am going up to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene goes, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. There's that moment. And I think in the interim, she has grabbed hold of him. And he says, don't cling to me. It, it's not don't touch me. It's don't grab hold of me. I think some people misunderstand this. And I noticed in a lot of those paintings I was showing you, the painters uh, made it so that Mary isn't quite touching Jesus because they, I think they thought Jesus meant to say, you shouldn't touch me, I'm, I'm too holy in this state now and it, it's inappropriate or wrong or maybe it would be bad for you to touch me. That's clearly not the case because uh, within a, uh, the next chapter, John is going to tell us how the risen Lord Jesus will tell Thomas, come here, put your hand in the nail marks in my hands and put your hand here in my side where the spear pierced me. So it isn't that Jesus couldn't be touched after the resurrection. So that he's saying something different. Don't hold on to me. And he, he alludes to the fact that there are things to be done and there are changes in how things are going to be working. I have not yet gone up to the Father. Jesus is very uh, briefly, within uh, not too many more days, is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and the experience of interacting with Jesus as a physical human being here on earth with us is not going to be the way moving forward. But he says, not just that things are about to change, but go to my siblings. And he introduces the language that we keep to this day. We who follow Jesus, because of what he has done in our lives, are now siblings. 
We are brothers and sisters. Go to my siblings, my brothers, and tell them. And he wants her to communicate to them the significance of what he has just accomplished in his death and resurrection. I am going up to my father. Throughout his whole public ministry, Jesus has been referring to God as my father who sent me here into the cosmos so that I might save the cosmos. My father, God, the father. is now your father as well. My God is your God. That's the significance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He made adoption a possibility for us. Adoption into the family of God. And if God is the one who controls and owns and is rightful owner of everything that exists in every possible sphere of existence, then Jesus is the rightful heir to all of that and we become, as the Apostle Paul would put it, co-heirs with Christ. We become children of God the Father, siblings of God the Son, Jesus has changed everything. So Mary does what she's been told to do. She runs to the disciple and proclaims, I have seen the Lord. People sometimes call Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles because Jesus sent her to announce to the other apostles I don't think it's coincidence that she's the one Jesus chose to reveal himself to first. She was the first witness of Christ's resurrection. I think the, the extravagance of her devotion, the, the, the passion with which she had been seeking to honor him in every possible way, Jesus would uh, meet with everyone, all the disciples that needed this personal encounter. Later this day, he's going to have a one-on-one -on -one with Peter, and he will eventually have uh, an encounter with Thomas that he's going to need, and he's going to meet every one of them. But he started with Mary Magdalene. She was the first to be released from the grief of that morning. And she was the one he chose as his apostle to the others. This is yet another indication that what we're dealing with here is genuine history. Because in the first century, women were not considered reliable witnesses. If you were trying to establish a case in court, you would not call a witness to testify that was a woman because they assumed women were too emotional and you couldn't trust the thing they said. They uh, lived in a patriarchal society and had a very low uh, estimation of the reliability of women's witness. So if the apostles had actually invented the resurrection as a story to convince people to start this new religion the way some people try to formulate this, 
Why in the world would they make the story up that the first person to see the risen Lord and to announce that to the rest of them was a woman? All by herself. Not even the required two witnesses of Jewish law. A single woman had a one-on-one encounter with Jesus. If you're making up stories, you don't make them up that way. You would say that Peter and John and James, the, you know, the, the pillar apostles are the ones who first encountered Jesus. That's not the way the story went because that's not the way it happened. And the, the honesty of the biblical authors in telling us these things points to the fact that they're not making up anything. They're just telling us what happened. Mary becomes the apostle to the apostles. I love that. I can imagine that for Mary, that moment when she realized that was Jesus and she grabbed hold of him. I think that moment, she wanted that moment to be the rest of her life. She didn't want to let go. That, that the, the joy that she found in him being there. She didn't want to let him out of her sight. And that's why Jesus has to tell her, this is not the end of the story. Most movies, this is where it would end, right? The great, you know, you have this tragic, it seems like the hero is utterly defeated and boom, the final twist ending where he rises in victory from the grave. Boom, that's the end of the story. And Jesus is telling Mary, no, this is the beginning of the story. We're just getting started. We don't just stop at me being risen and you and I being together again. We're reunited. Victory over sin and death. That's the end. No, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. The kingdom of God starts now. And I have work for you to do. You need to let go of me. And you need to go back to the others and tell them. I have seen the Lord. We can forget that sometimes. Sometimes we're so broken when Jesus finds us and there's such joy and relief and release in his loving acceptance of us and his forgiveness of our sins that we just want that to be it. We want to spend the rest of our lives in that moment. Some Christians think that what we need to do is just get away from the world and go off onto the mountainside somewhere and join a monastery and it's just going to be me and Jesus forever and let the whole world disappear. That's why Jesus says, don't cling to me. Because he doesn't just want to meet my need. But in meeting my need, he wants to enlist me as a participant in the work of his kingdom. And I have to be willing to go back out. And I have to be willing to tell people, I have seen the Lord. Mary wanted to cling to Jesus and forget everything else. But Jesus told her to let go. 
There was still work to be done. How has Jesus led you from enjoying him and his goodness to focus on sharing him with others? Jesus is for us. Every single thing he was for Mary from Magdala. Just like he did with her, he frees us from the powers of darkness that seek to destroy us. All those many forces that are constantly surrounding us and trying to drag us to the grave. To lay waste and ruin of our lives. Jesus frees us from all of that. Just like he did with Mary. He calls us to follow him. To leave that old life behind. To begin a new life following after him. And he has risen from the grave. Victorious over all the powers of sin and death. And we may be tempted to cling just to him. To blot out the world and everybody else. And all the nastiness around us. And just be lost in him forever. But this is not the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus sends us back to the rest of the human family. He sends us with that same message of hope. I have seen the Lord. Come and join me in loving devotion. I don't know where each of you stand this morning, whether you know Jesus the way Mary knew him, whether you know him as your master, as your Lord, as the one you have surrendered your life to. If that's not true of you, I want to ask you to do that today. Give Jesus your life and discover what eternal living is all about. Let him forgive your sins and become the Lord and God of your life. All it takes is just a prayer Say, Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know you did everything necessary to forgive my sin. Please take my life and do of it whatever you will. We have a time of invitation now. It's your opportunity to respond to the message you have heard from God's Word. Let's all stand. And there are people who are going to be at the back if you'll make your way there now on either side while we're singing this closing song. If you have any decision Christ is laying on your heart that you need to make today, don't fight him. Don't put it off. Don't leave it for tomorrow. Do it today. Go back there. Take the hand of someone at the back and let them pray with you and encourage you. Come while we sing.